Chapter Two of Mrs. Skaggs' Husbands and Other Stories by Bret Hart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How Santa Claus Came to Simpson's Bar. It had been raining in the valley of the Sacramento. The North Fork had overflowed its banks, and Rattlesnake Creek was impassable. The few boulders that had marked the summer ford at Simpson's Crossing were obliterated by a vast sheet of water stretching to the foothills. The upstage was stopped at Granger's. The last mail had been abandoned in the tools, the rider swimming for his life. An area, remarked the Sierra Avalanche, with pensive local pride, as large as the state of Massachusetts is now under water. Nor was the weather any better in the foothills. The mud lay deep on the mountain road. Wagons that neither physical force nor moral objurgation could move from the evil ways into which they had fallen encumbered the track, and the way to Simpson's Bar was indicated by broken-down teams and hard swearing. And farther on, cut off and inaccessible, rained upon and bedraggled, smitten by high winds and threatened by high water, Simpson's Bar, on the eve of Christmas Day, 1862, clung like a swallow's nest to the rocky entablature and splintered capitals of Table Mountain, and shook in the blast. As night shut down on the settlement, a few lights gleamed through the mist from the windows of cabins on either side of the highway, now crossed and gullied by lawless streams and swept by marauding winds. Happily, most of the population were gathered at Thompson's store, clustered round a red-hot stove at which they silently spat in some accepted sense of social communion that perhaps rendered conversation unnecessary. Indeed, most methods of diversion had long since been exhausted on Simpson's Bar. High water had suspended the regular occupations on Gulch and on River, and a consequent lack of money and whiskey had taken the zest from most illegitimate recreation. Even Mr. Hamlin was fain to leave the bar with fifty dollars in his pocket, the only amount actually realized of the large sums won by him in the successful exercise of his arduous profession. If I was asked, he remarked somewhat later, if I was asked to point out a pretty little village where a retired sport, as didn't care for money, could exercise itself frequently and lively, I'd say Simpson's Bar. But for a young man with a large family dependent on his exertions, it don't pay. As Mr. Hamlin's family consisted mainly of female adults, this remark is quoted rather to show the breadth of his humor than the exact extent of his responsibilities. Howbeit, the unconscious objects of this satire sat that evening in the listless apathy begotten of idleness and lack of excitement. Even the sudden splashing of hoofs before the door did not arouse them. Dick Bullen alone paused in the act of scraping out his pipe, and lifted his head, but no other one of the group indicated any interest in or recognition of the man who entered. 
It was a figure familiar enough to the company, and known in Simpson's Bar as the Old Man, a man of perhaps fifty years, grizzled and scant of hair, but still fresh and youthful of complexion, a face full of ready but not very powerful sympathy, with a chameleon-like aptitude for taking on the shade and color of contiguous moods and feelings. He had evidently just left some hilarious companions, and did not at first notice the gravity of the group, but clapped the shoulder of the nearest man jocularly, and threw himself into a vacant chair. "'Just heard the best thing out, boys. You know Smiley over there? Jim Smiley, funniest man in the bar. Well, Jim was just telling a richest yarn about—' "'Smiley's a fool,' interrupted a gloomy voice. A particular skunk, added another in sepulchral accents. A silence followed these positive statements. The old man glanced quickly around the group. Then his face slowly changed. That's so, he said reflectively after a pause. Certainly a sort of a skunk and something of a fool, in course. He was silent for a moment as in painful contemplation of the unsavoriness and folly of the unpopular Smiley. Dismal weather, ain't it? he added, now fully embarked on the current of prevailing sentiment. Mighty rough papers on the boys, and no show for money this season. And tomorrow's Christmas. There was a movement among the men at this announcement, but whether of satisfaction or disgust was not plain. Yes, continued the old man, in the lugubrious tone he had, within the last few moments, unconsciously adopted. Yes, Christmas, and tonight's Christmas Eve. You see, boys, I kind of thought, that is, I sort of had an idea, just, just passing like, you know, that maybe you'd all like to come over to my house tonight, have a sort of tear-round. But I suppose now you wouldn't. Don't feel like it, maybe? He added with anxious sympathy, peering into the faces of his companions. Well, I don't know, responded Tom Flynn with some cheerfulness. Perhaps we may. But how about your wife, old man? What does she say to it? The old man hesitated. His conjugal experience had not been a happy one. And the fact was known to Simpson's Bar. His first wife, a delicate, pretty little woman, had suffered keenly and secretly from the jealous suspicions of her husband, until one day he invited the whole bar to his house to expose her infidelity. On arriving, the party found the shy petite creature quietly engaged in her household duties, and retired abashed and discomfited. But the sensitive woman did not easily recover from the shock of this extraordinary outrage. It was with difficulty she regained her equanimity sufficiently to release her lover from the closet in which he was concealed and escape with him. She left a boy of three years to comfort her bereaved husband. The old man's present wife had been his cook. She was large, loyal, and aggressive. Before he could reply, Joe Dimmick suggested with great directness that it was the old man's house, and that, invoking the divine power, if the case were his own, he would invite whom he pleased 
even if in so doing he imperiled his salvation. The powers of evil, he further remarked, should contend against him vainly, all this delivered with a terseness and vigor lost in this necessary translation. "'Of course, certainly, that's it,' said the old man with a sympathetic frown. "'There's no trouble about that. It's my own house. Built every stick on it myself. Don't you be afeard of her, boys. She may cut up a trifle rough, as women do, but she'll come round. Secretly, the old man trusted to the exultation of liquor and the power of courageous example to sustain him in such an emergency. As yet, Dick Bullen, the oracle and leader of Simpson's Bar, had not spoken. He now took his pipe from his lips. Old man, how's that ere Johnny getting on? Seems to me he didn't look so pert last time I seen him on the bluff heaving rocks at Chinaman. Didn't seem to take much interest in it. There was a gang of em by there yesterday, drowned out up the river. And I kind of thought of Johnny, and how he'd miss him. Maybe now we'd be in the way if he was sick. The father, evidently touched not only by this pathetic picture of Tommy's deprivation, but by the considerate delicacy of the speaker, hastened to assure him that Johnny was better and that a little fun might liven him up. Whereupon Dick arose, shook himself, and sang, I'm ready. Lead the way, old man. Here goes. Himself led the way with a leap, a characteristic howl, and darted out into the night. As he passed through the outer room, he caught up a blazing brand from the hearth. The action was repeated by the rest of the party, closely following and elbowing each other and before the astonished proprietor of Thompson's Grocery was aware of the intention of his guests, the room was deserted. The night was pitchy dark. In the first gust of wind their temporary torches were extinguished, and only the red brands dancing and flitting in the gloom like drunken will-o'-the-wisps indicated their whereabouts. Their way led up Pine Tree Canyon, at the head of which a broad, low, bark-thatched cabin burrowed in the mountainside. It was the home of the old man, and the entrance to the tunnel in which he worked, when he worked at all. Here the crowd paused for a moment, out of delicate deference to their host, who came up panting in the rear. "'Perhaps you better hold on a second out here, while I go in and see that things is all right,' said the old man, with an indifference he was far from feeling. The suggestion was graciously accepted. The door opened and closed on the host, and the crowd, leaning their backs against the wall and cowering under the eaves, waited and listened. For a few moments there was no sound but the dripping of water from the eaves, and the stir and rustle of wrestling boughs above them. Then the men became uneasy and whispered suggestion and suspicion passed from the one to the other. Reckon she's caved in his head the first lick. Decoyed him into the tunnel and barred him up, likely. Got him down and sitting on him. Probably battling something to heave on us. Stand clear of the door, boys. For just then the latch clicked and the door slowly opened, and a voice said, Come in, out of the wet. 
The voice was neither that of the old man nor of his wife. It was the voice of a small boy, its weak treble broken by that preternatural hoarseness which only vagabondage and the habit of premature self-assertion can give. It was the face of a small boy that looked up at theirs, a face that might have been pretty and even refined, but that it was darkened by evil knowledge from within, and dirt and hard experience from without. He had a blanket around his shoulders and had evidently just risen from his bed. Come in, he repeated, and don't make no noise. The old man's in there talking to Ma, he continued, pointing to an adjacent room which seemed to be a kitchen from which the old man's voice came in deprecating accents. Let me be, he added querulously to Dick Bullen, who had caught him up blanket and all, and was affecting to toss him into the fire. Let go of me, you damned old fool, to hear. Thus adjured, Dick Bullen lowered Johnny to the ground with a smothered laugh, while the men, entering quietly, ranged themselves around a long table of rough boards which occupied the center of the room. Johnny then gravely proceeded to a cupboard and brought out several articles which he deposited on the table. That's whiskey, and crackers, and red herons, and cheese. He took a bite of the latter on his way to the table. And sugar. He scooped up a mouthful and root with a small and very dirty hand. And tobacco. There's dried apples, too, on the shelf, but I don't admire em. Apples is swellin'. There, he concluded. Now, wade in, and don't be afeard. I don't mind the old woman. She don't belong to me. So long. He had stepped to the threshold of a small room, scarcely larger than a closet, partitioned off from the main apartment, and holding in its dim recess a small bed. He stood there a moment looking at the company, his bare feet peeping from the blanket, and nodded. "'Hello, Johnny. You ain't going to turn in again, are you?' said Dick. "'Yes, I are,' responded Johnny decidedly. "'Why, what's up, old fellow?' "'I'm sick.' "'How sick?' "'I've got fear, and childblains, and rheumatiz,' returned Johnny, and vanished within. After a moment's pause, he added, in the dark, apparently from under the bedclothes, "'And Biles!' There was an embarrassing silence. The men looked at each other and at the fire. Even with the appetizing banquet before them, it seemed as if they might again fall into the despondency of Thompson's grocery, when the voice of the old man, incautiously lifted, came deprecatingly from the kitchen. "'Certainly, that's so.' In course they is, a gang of lazy drunken loafers, and not their dick bullens the orneriest of all. Didn't have no more sabby than to come round there with sickness in the house and no provision. That's what I said. Bullen, says I, it's crazy drunk you are, or a fool, says I, to think of such a thing. Staples, I says. Be you a man, Staples, and expect to raise hell under my roof with invalids laying round? But they would come, they would. 
That's what you must spect of such trash as lays round the bar. A burst of laughter from the men followed this unfortunate exposure. Whether it was overheard in the kitchen, or whether the old man's irate companion had just exhausted all other modes of expressing her contemptuous indignation, I cannot say. But a back door was suddenly slammed with great violence. A moment later the old man reappeared, happily unconscious of the cause of the late hilarious outburst, and smiled blandly. The old woman thought she'd just run over to Miss McFadden's for a sociable call, he explained, with jaunty indifference, as he took a seat at the board. Oddly enough, it needed this untoward incident to relieve the embarrassment that was beginning to be felt by the party, and their natural audacity returned with their host. I do not propose to record the convivialities of that evening. The inquisitive reader will accept the statement that the conversation was characterized by the same intellectual exultation, the same cautious reverence, the same fastidious delicacy, the same rhetorical precision, and the same logical and coherent discourse somewhat later in the evening, which distinguishes similar gatherings of the masculine sex in more civilized localities and under more favorable auspices. No glasses were broken in the absence of any. No liquor was uselessly spilt on the floor or table in the scarcity of that article. It was nearly midnight when the festivities were interrupted. Hush, said Dick Bullen, holding up his hand. It was the querulous voice of Johnny from his adjacent closet. Oh, Dad! The old man rose hurriedly and disappeared in the closet. Presently he reappeared. His rheumatism is coming on again bad, he explained, and he wants rubbing. He lifted the demijohn of whiskey from the table and shook it. It was empty. Dick Bullen put down his tin cup with an embarrassed laugh. So did the others. The old man examined their contents and said hopefully, I reckon that's enough. He don't need much. You hold on all year for a spell, and I'll be back and vanished in the closet with an old flannel shirt and the whiskey. The door closed but imperfectly, and the following dialogue was distinctly audible. Now, Sonny, where does she hurt worst? Sometimes over there, and sometimes under here. But it's most powerful from here to here. Rub here, Dad. A silence seemed to indicate a brisk rubbing. Then Johnny. Having a good time out here, Dad? Yes, honey. Tomorrow's Christmas, ain't it? Yes, honey. How does she feel now? Better rub a little further down. What's Christmas anyway? What's it all about? Oh, it's a day. This exhaustive definition was apparently satisfactory, for there was a silent interval of rubbing. Presently, Johnny again. Ma says that everywhere else but here, everybody gives things to everybody Christmas. Then she just waded into you. She says there's a man they call Sandy Claus, not a white man, you know, but a, a kind of Chinaman, comes down the chimney night afore Christmas and gives things to children, boys like me, puts them in their buttes. That's what she tried to play upon me. Easy now, Pop. Where are you rubbing to? That's a mile from the place. 
She just made that up, didn't she? Just to aggravate me and you. Don't rub there. Why, Dad? In the great quiet that seemed to have fallen upon the house, the sigh of the near pines and the drip of leaves without was very distinct. Johnny's voice, too, was lowered as he went on. Don't you take on now, for I'm getting all right fast. What's the boys doing out there? The old man partly opened the door and peered through. His guests were sitting there sociably enough, and there were a few silver coins and a lean buckskin purse on the table. Betting on something. Some little game or another. They're all right, he replied to Johnny and recommenced his rubbing. I'd like to take a hand and win some money, said Johnny, reflectively, after a pause. The old man glibly repeated what was evidently a familiar formula, that if Johnny would wait until he struck it rich in the tunnel, he'd have lots of money, etc., etc. Yes, said Johnny, but you don't. And whether you strike it or I win it, it's about the same. It's all luck. But it's mighty curious about Christmas, ain't it? Why do they call it Christmas? Perhaps from some instinctive deference to the overbearing of his guests, or from some vague sense of incongruity, the old man's reply was so low as to be inaudible beyond the room. Yes, said Johnny, with some slight abatement of interest. I've heard of him before. There, that'll do, Dad. I don't ache near so bad as I did. Now, let me tighten this here blanket. So. Now, he added in a muffled whisper, sit down here by me till I go to sleep. To assure himself of obedience, he disengaged one hand from the blanket and, grasping his father's sleeve, again composed himself to rest. For some moments the old man waited patiently. Then the unwanted stillness of the house excited his curiosity, and without moving from the bed, he cautiously opened the door with his disengaged hand and looked into the main room. In his infinite surprise, it was dark and deserted. But even then, a smoldering log on the hearth broke, and by the upspringing blaze, he saw the figure of Dick Bullen sitting by the dying embers. Hello! Dick started, rose, and came somewhat unsteadily toward him. Where's the boys? asked the old man. Gone up the canyon on a little pacer. They're coming back for me in a minute. I'm waiting round for em. What are you staring at, old man? <laughs> he added with a forced laugh. You do you think I'm drunk? The old man might have been pardoned the supposition, for Dick's eyes were humid and his face flushed. He loitered and lounged back to the chimney, yawned, shook himself, buttoned up his coat, and laughed. <laughs> Liquor ain't so plenty as that, old man. Now, don't you get up, he continued, as the old man made a movement to release his sleeve from Johnny's hand. Don't you mind manners. Sit just where you be. I'm going in a jiffy. There, that's them now. There was a low tap at the door. Dick Bullen opened it quickly, nodded good night to his host, and disappeared. The old man would have followed him, 
but for the hand that still unconsciously grasped his sleeve. He could have easily disengaged it. It was small, weak, and emaciated. But, perhaps because it was small, weak, and emaciated, he changed his mind, and, drawing his chair closer to the bed, rested his head upon it. In this defenseless attitude, the potency of his earlier potations surprised him. The room flickered and faded before his eyes, reappeared, faded again, went out, and left him asleep. Meantime, Dick Bullen, closing the door, confronted his companions. "'Are you ready?' said Staples. "'Ready,' said Dick. "'What's the time?' "'Past twelve was the reply. "'Can you make it? It's nigh on fifty miles, the round trip, hither and yon.' "'I reckon,' returned Dick shortly. "'Where's the mare?' "'Bill and Jack's holding her at the crossing.' "'Let him hold on a minute longer,' said Dick. He turned and re-entered the house softly. By the light of the guttering candle and dying fire he saw that the door of the little room was open. He stepped toward it on tiptoe and looked in. The old man had fallen back in his chair, snoring, his helpless feet thrust out in a line with his collapsed shoulders, and his hat pulled over his eyes. Beside him, on the narrow wooden bedstead, lay Johnny, muffled tightly in a blanket that hid all save a strip of forehead and a few curls damp with perspiration. Dick Bullen made a step forward, hesitated, and glanced over his shoulder into the deserted room. Everything was quiet. With a sudden resolution, he parted his huge mustaches with both hands and stooped over the sleeping boy. But even as he did so, a mischievous blast, lying in wait, swooped down the chimney, rekindled the hearth, and lit up the room with a shameless glow from which Dick fled in bashful terror. His companions were already waiting for him at the crossing. Two of them were struggling in the darkness with some strange misshapen bulk, which as Dick came nearer took the semblance of a great yellow horse. It was the mare. She was not a pretty picture. From her Roman nose to her riding haunches, from her arched spine, hidden by the stiff machilas of a Mexican saddle, to her thick, straight, bony legs, there was not a line of equine grace. In her half-blind but wholly vicious white eyes, in her protruding underlip, in her monstrous color, there was nothing but ugliness and vice. "'Now then,' said Staples, "'start clear her heels, boys, and up with you. "'Don't miss your first holt of remain, "'and mind you, get your off stirrup quick. "'Ready?' There was a leap, a scrambling struggle, a bound, a wild retreat of the crowd, a circle of flying hoofs, two springless leaps that jarred the earth, a rapid play and jingle of spurs, a plunge, and then the voice of Dick somewhere in the darkness. All right. Don't take the lower road back unless you're hard pushed for time. Don't hold her in the downhill. We'll be at the ford at five. 
Gelang, hoopa, mula, go!" A splash, a spark struck from the ledge in the road, a clatter in the rocky cut beyond, and Dick was gone. Sing, O Muse, the ride of Richard Bullen! Sing, O Muse, of chivalrous men! The sacred quest, the doughty deeds, the battery of low churls, the fearsome ride and gruesome perils of the flower of Simpson's Bar. Alack! She is dainty, this muse. She will have none of this bucking brute and swaggering ragged rider, and I must fain follow him in prose afoot. It was one o'clock, and yet he had only gained Rattlesnake Hill. For in that time Jovita had rehearsed to him all her imperfections and practiced all her vices. Thrice she had stumbled. Twice she had thrown up her Roman nose in a straight line with the reins and, resisting bit and spur, struck out madly across country. Twice had she reared and rearing fallen backward, and twice had the agile Dick, unharmed, regained his seat before she found her vicious legs again. And a mile beyond them, at the foot of a long hill, was Rattlesnake Creek. Dick knew that here was the crucial test of his ability to perform his enterprise, set his teeth grimly, put his knees well into her flanks, and changed his defensive tactics to brisk aggression. Bullied and maddened, Jovita began the descent of the hill. Here the artful Richard pretended to hold her in with ostentatious objurgation and well-feigned cries of alarm. It is unnecessary to add that Jovita instantly ran away, nor need I state the time made in the descent. It is written in the Chronicles of Simpson's Bar. Enough that in another moment, as it seemed to Dick, she was splashing on the overflowed banks of Rattlesnake Creek. As Dick expected, the momentum she had acquired carried her beyond the point of balking, and, holding her well together for a mighty leap, they dashed into the middle of the swiftly flowing current. A few moments of kicking, wading, and swimming, and Dick drew a long breath on the opposite bank. The road from Rattlesnake Creek to Red Mountain was tolerably level. Either the plunge in Rattlesnake Creek had dampened her baleful fire, or the art which led to it had shown her the superior wickedness of her rider, for Jovita no longer wasted her surplus energy in wanton conceits. Once she bucked, but it was from force of habit. Once she shied, but it was from a new freshly painted meeting-house at the crossing of the county road. Hollows, ditches, gravelly deposits, patches of freshly springing grasses flew from beneath her rattling hoofs. She began to smell unpleasantly. Once or twice she coughed slightly, but there was no abatement of her strength or speed. By two o'clock he had passed Red Mountain and begun the descent to the plain. Ten minutes later the driver of the fast pioneer coach was overtaken and passed by a man on a pinto hoss, an event sufficiently notable for remark. At half-past two Dick rose in his stirrups with a great shout. 
Stars were glittering through the rifted clouds, and beyond him, out of the plain, rose two spires, a flagstaff, and a straggling line of black objects. Dick jingled his spurs and swung his riata. Jovita bounded forward, and in another moment they swept into Tuttleville and drew up before the wooden piazza of the Hotel of All Nations. What transpired that night at Tuttleville is not strictly a part of this record. Briefly I may state, however, that after Jovita had been handed over to a sleepy ostler, whom she at once kicked into unpleasant consciousness, Dick sallied out with the barkeeper for a tour of the sleeping town. Lights still gleamed from a few saloons and gambling houses, but avoiding these they stopped before several closed shops, and by persistent tapping and judicious outcry roused the proprietors from their beds and made them unbar the doors of their magazines and expose their wares. Sometimes they were met by curses, but oftener by interest and some concern in their needs, and the interview was invariably concluded by a drink. It was three o'clock before this pleasantry was given over, and, with a small waterproof bag of India rubber strapped on his shoulders, Dick returned to the hotel. But here he was waylaid by beauty. Beauty opulent in charms, affluent in dress, persuasive in speech, and Spanish in accent. In vain she repeated the invitation in Excelsior. Happily scorned by all alpine-climbing youth, and rejected by this child of the Sierras, a rejection softened in this instance by a laugh and his last gold coin. And then he sprang to the saddle and dashed down the lonely street and out into the lonelier plain, where presently the lights, the black line of houses, the spires, and the flagstaff sank into the earth behind him again and were lost in the distance. The storm had cleared away, the air was brisk and cold, the outlines of adjacent landmarks were distinct, but it was half-past four before Dick reached the meeting-house and the crossing of the county road. To avoid the rising grade he had taken a longer and more circuitous road, in whose viscid mud Jovita sank fetlock deep at every bound. It was a poor preparation for a steady ascent of five miles more, but Jovita, gathering her legs under her, took it with her usual blind, unreasoning fury, and a half-hour later reached the long level that led to Rattlesnake Creek. Another half-hour would bring him to the creek. He threw the reins lightly upon the neck of the mare, chirruped to her, and began to sing. Suddenly Jovita shied with a bound that would have unseated a less practiced rider. Hanging to her rein was a figure that had leaped from the bank, and at the same time from the road before her arose a shadowy horse and rider. "'Throw up your hands!' commanded this second apparition, with an oath. Dick felt the mare tremble, quiver, and apparently sink under him. He knew what it meant, and was prepared. "'Stand aside, Jack Simpson. I know you, damned thief!' Let me pass, or... He did not finish the sentence. Jovita rose straight in the air with a terrific bound, throwing the figure from her bit 
with a single shake of her vicious head, and charged with deadly malevolence down on the impediment before her. An oath, a pistol shot, horse and highwayman rolled over in the road, and the next moment Jovita was a hundred yards away. But the good right arm of her rider, shattered by a bullet, dropped helplessly at his side. Without slacking his speed, he shifted the reins to his left hand. But a few moments later he was obliged to halt and tighten the saddle girths that had slipped in the onset. This, in his crippled condition, took some time. He had no fear of pursuit, but looking up he saw that the eastern stars were already paling, and that the distant peaks had lost their ghostly whiteness, and now stood out blackly against a lighter sky day was upon him then completely absorbed in a single idea he forgot the pain of his wound and mounting again dashed on toward rattlesnake creek but now jovita's breath came broken by gasps dick reeled in his saddle and brighter and brighter grew the sky ride richard run jovita linger o oh day for the last few rods there was a roaring in his ears was it exhaustion from loss of blood, or what? He was dazed and giddy as he swept down the hill, and did not recognize his surroundings. Had he taken the wrong road, or was this Rattlesnake Creek? It was, but the brawling creek he had swam a few hours before had risen, more than doubled its volume, and now rolled a swift and resistless river between him and Rattlesnake Hill. For the first time that night, Richard's heart sank within him. The river, the mountain, the quickening east, swam before his eyes. He shut them to recover his self-control. In that brief interval, by some fantastic mental process, the little room at Simpson's bar and the figures of the sleeping father and son rose upon him. He opened his eyes wildly, cast off his coat, pistol, boots and saddle, bound the precious pack tightly to his shoulders, grasped the bare flanks of Jovita with his bared knees, and with a shout dashed into the yellow water. A cry rose from the opposite bank as the head of a man and horse struggled for a few moments against the battling current, and then were swept away amidst uprooted trees and whirling driftwood. The old man started and woke. The fire on the hearth was dead, the candle in the outer room flickering in its socket, and somebody was rapping at the door. He opened it, but fell back with a cry before the dripping, half-naked figure that reeled against the doorpost. Dick? Hush. Is he awake yet? No, but Dick? Dry up, you old fool. Get me some whiskey quick. The old man flew and returned with an empty bottle. Dick would have sworn, but his strength was not equal to the occasion. He staggered, caught at the handle of the door, and motioned to the old man. There's something in my pack here for Johnny. Take it off, I can't. The old man unstrapped the pack and laid it before the exhausted man. Open it, quick. He did so with trembling fingers. It contained only a few poor toys, 
cheap and barbaric enough, goodness knows, but bright with paint and tinsel. One of them was broken. Another, I fear, was irretrievably ruined by water. And on a third, ah, me, there was a cruel spot. It don't look like much, that's a fact, said Dick ruefully. But it's the best we could do. Take him, old man, and put him in his stocking. And tell him, tell him, you know, hold me, old man. The old man caught at his sinking figure. Tell him, said Dick, with a weak little laugh, <laughs> tell him Sandy Claus has come. And even so, bedraggled, ragged, unshaven and unshorn, with one arm hanging helplessly at his side, Santa Claus came to Simpson's bar and fell fainting on the first threshold. The Christmas dawn came slowly after, touching the remoter peaks with the rosy warmth of ineffable love, and it looked so tenderly on Simpson's bar that the whole mountain, as if caught in a generous action, blushed to the skies. End of chapter 2